Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, we worship you, Lord. You're such an awesome God. And we're so thankful for your word, that it's not an old, antiquated book, but it's the living, breathing word of God. And it applies to every life in this room today. And Father, just as we look at the book of Exodus and just the, the bondage that was upon Israel and just the examples of your son and his love through their deliverance, Father, I pray, Lord, we would just learn from the example of Moses and just the way that, that you are such a gracious God, even among people who are stiff-necked. And Father, I just ask, Lord, that tonight you would be our teacher, that, Father God, that this word would touch each heart that's here, that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Well, like I do every time we start a new book, I'm going to take about seven or eight minutes, and I'm going to give you an overview on the book of Exodus. And then we're going to look, Lord willing, at chapter one tonight. We're going to look at the entire first chapter. But Exodus picks up right where Genesis leaves off, but a great deal of time later. At the very beginning, the first word is and. If you look at the original language in Hebrew, the first word of Exodus is and, because it picks up where Genesis leaves off. We'll look at that tonight. But after 400 years of growth in Egypt, this infant nation that started with 70 people will grow to several million people. And in the middle of that, there's going to be a time where they go from being people that are favored in Egypt to people that are in bondage in Egypt. We know that we left Genesis that Joseph was a mighty man of God and God had used him mightily and they honored Joseph above all else. Matter of fact, when Joseph's father died, Pharaoh sent his entire household out to go and honor him in his death. And so we know that at one point, Israel was looked upon with favor in Egypt, but that's going to change. We'll see that Moses in the, in the text is one of the main characters. We're going to see that he is a type of Christ. He's a picture of Christ in many ways. We'll see his deliverance as an infant from a ruler's murderous plan, his stepping down from a royal throne in order to one day free his people from bondage. It says in Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Faith chapter, it says, By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked forward to the reward. In the first eight chapters, we're going to see Exodus from a, the Israel's exodus from bondage in Egypt. Then the last, uh, from 19 to 40, we're going to see instruction given by God at Mount Sinai. And if, how many of you guys have ever seen the movie Ten Commandments? Okay. Well, not totally scripturally accurate, it's a good movie. Okay. Because it does put faces to stories that we see in the Bible. And we're going to see a lot of that as we go through the book of Exodus. The word exodus means to exit or to depart, a going out. That is actually the word, the Greek word. The Hebrew word means something different. It means, and these are the names. And it's taken from verse, chapter 1, verse 1. All right? Now Exodus begins, again, in Hebrew, showing the connection with Genesis. Now the author is Moses. A lot of people dispute who the author is, but if they read the Bible, I don't know how they can, because Joshua said it was Moses, Malachi said it was Moses, the disciples said it was Moses, Paul said it was Moses, and Jesus said it was Moses. So that kind of works for me, I think it was Moses, amen? So Moses wrote the book. When was the book written? Well, the, the events of, the, of Exodus are from roughly 1875 B.C. until about 1445 B.C. It begins with the the time that they entered into the land of Egypt, and it ends with the tabernacle being built in the wilderness. Now the two main, main purposes, before we look at the text, that we will see the main themes, one is redemption, portrayed in the Passover. Through the shedding of blood came both redemption and judgment. Remember that Israel is going to understand, because the law is going to be given in Exodus, that they are sinners for the first time. 
And Passover is a picture of the redemption that can only come through Jesus Christ. So we're going to see redemption very clearly as we go through these 40-odd chapters as we're looking in the book of Exodus. We're also going to see deliverance. Because once they were redeemed, once Passover came, then they were delivered out of bondage. Bondage being a picture or a typology of sin. You know what? It's a picture of what happens to everybody in this room. If you have not given your life to Jesus Christ, you are in bondage to sin right now. The Bible says that every man on this planet is a slave. You are either a slave to sin or you are a slave to righteousness. Now, what's the difference? Now, wait a minute. You're a Christian. That means you're perfect. No, that's not it at all. But as Christians, where we once ran to sin, we now flee from it. Amen? When before we could live in sin and have peace about it, now it convicts us and it draws us away from it. So two of the main themes we're going to see in Exodus really point to Jesus, as virtually the entire Bible does. Now, what about Jesus in Exodus? We talked about Jesus in Genesis. What about Jesus in Exodus? Now, there are no, what I would call, fulfilled prophecies that are prophesied in Exodus, but there are a bunch of typologies or pictures of Jesus in things that we see in the book of Exodus. First of all, Moses. Moses has been referred to as a type of Christ, and here's why. Both Moses and Jesus were prophets. They were both priests. They were both kings. They were both endangered in their infancy. They both voluntarily renounced power and wealth. Both of them were deliverers. Both of them were lawgivers. And both of them were mediators. That's a picture of Jesus if you look at Moses. The Passover, as we just talked about, who's the Passover lamb? Who's the lamb, the spotless lamb of God that was pointed to in Passover? It's Jesus. There it is. Amen. Who are the, the seven feasts that we'll see as we go through Exodus? Each one of them points to Jesus Christ or a part of his ministry. Exodus, a deliverance out of the bondage of sin. In, when they ate, when they were wandering in the wilderness, what did they eat? Who remembers? What did God drop out of the sky? What was it called? Manna. And manna is a picture of Jesus. Because later it's referred to in John 6, Our fathers ate manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread to eat. In verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. Why did they only give him enough manna for each day? Because there was a need for man to know that the bread of life was coming. The bread that he would eat, that he would no longer hunger again. And manna points to Jesus Christ. Lastly, and we'll look at the text. Again, I'm giving you this overview just because we're going to spend, well, more than likely eight or nine months in the book of Exodus. So it's probably a good idea that we have an understanding where we're headed. The tabernacle. The tabernacle, when we get to the tabernacle later in Exodus, we're going to see that every element in the tabernacle is a picture of Jesus Christ and his ministry. It's a picture of salvation. The arrangement, how they're arranged, it's not feng shui, but how, they, how the stuff's arranged points to Jesus Christ. Every bit of it, every item that's in there, from the shedding of blood to the death that happens there to later beauty, holiness, and the glory of God. Another thing that we'll see for the first time we've never seen anywhere else in the Bible, see in Exodus, is a high priest. The priesthood comes into existence in Exodus. And who's the great high priest? It's Jesus Christ. Amen? He's the only mediator between man and God. We will also see the rock. We're going to see that why did Moses not get to enter into the promised land? This is many chapters away. Why not? Who remembers? He smote the rock. He's supposed to speak to the rock and water would pour out of it. And out of anger, he smote the rock. Who's the rock? Jesus. And when he smote the rock, that was a picture of what was going to happen to Jesus Christ upon the cross. So all these things that we see in the book of Exodus, written you know, some 1,400 years before Jesus came to earth, every one of them pointed to him. 66 books, 40 authors, 3 continents, 3 languages, 1,500 years, 1 central theme, no contradictions. How is that possible? Because God wrote it. Amen? And don't you love the Bible? The Bible rocks. All right? Amen. 
So we see the contribu- contributions to the Bible that established religious ceremony, the formation of the priesthood, the Mosaic Law. We're going to see the Ten Commandments. We're going to see the sacrificial system. And again, every single one of those things points to Jesus Christ. Exodus will also see Israel's need for redemption, God's deliverance. We're going to see the plagues on Egypt. And we'll, we'll talk about one of those at the end of the message today. We're going to see redemption at Passover. God's preservation in the wilderness. We're going to see the parting of the Red Sea. Manna falling from heaven. The revelation or the revealing of the Old Covenant. The Ten Commandments. The sacrificial system. The tabernacle. Israel's rebellion. Uh, Moses' intervention. And finally, Israel's obedience. And God filling the tabernacle with His glory, which is in the last chapter of Exodus. Amen? It's exciting, isn't it? I'm fired up. I can't wait to go through this book. It's good stuff, right? Love the Bible. Exodus is my favorite book this week because that's the one I'm teaching, right? I mean, whatever you're in, how can you not? People say, what's your favorite book of the Bible, Pastor Dave? It's like asking me, which one of your kids is your favorite? I love them all because it's all good. Amen? So with that being said, let's take a look. And tonight we're going to look at the rapid growth of Israel in the first seven verses. Then we're going to look at Israel's severe affliction. And then we're going to see their planned extinction by Egypt. So let's begin in verse 1, looking at Israel's rapid growth. It says, Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man in his household came with Jacob. Now as I said in Hebrew, the first word there is not now, it's and. And the reason it's and is it picks up where we left off in Genesis. Remember we left off in Genesis with Jacob on his deathbed and he poured out his blessing upon his sons. And then we saw Joseph's death. And the last thing Joseph said before he died is he reassured his, his family of the covenant that was to come. God is going to make you a great nation. God is going to bless you. And God is going to take you out of this land into the land of promise, which would not happen for some 400 years. But he knew that it would happen. He said, and you're going to take my bones up with you. And that's exactly what happened. So these are the names. A direct connection, again, with the previous chapter. Now, names. I love this. It says, these are the names. Don't you love that God knows your name? Doesn't that blow your mind? You know, one of the things I struggle with the most is people's names. And that's not a good thing. That's not a good thing if you're a pastor. That's no bueno. That's not good. Now, in San Jose, you know, sometimes I'd, get, I'd speak on a Sunday morning in front of, you know, over 2,000 people. And I would feel really bad because I'd be in the grocery store and somebody would come up and say, Pastor Day. Well, that's a good hand. That helps me to know that I met him at church. You know, they say, Pastor Day, that usually helps. I have no idea who these people are. You know, because you're in the front, everybody sees you, I don't see that. But what's awesome to me is, you know, they can be disappointed because Dave's going to fail you because I'm going to forget your name. I remember faces, I'm great with that, your name, I'm bad with names. That's why I ask people like six times, tell me your name one more time. Because I want to know and I want to remember because it is important to me. But here's what's awesome. How many people have ever lived in the history of mankind? God knows your name. And he doesn't just know your name, he knows the number of hairs on your head and he loves you. That's the God that we serve. Amen? He cares about every aspect of your life. And the Bible says in John 10, 3, he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. Our God is a personal God, a a caring God, a merciful God. So let's take a look at, it says here, the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt, each man in his household came with Jacob. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All these were descendants of Jacob, were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. Now, we just spent about nine months going through Genesis. And we looked at all of these men in detail. But the one thing I want to say about them is this, to me, is a picture of God's grace, that their names are here. Because remember, how did these guys do? How did these 12 sons do? 
these 12 patriarchs of the faith, the 12 men whose names are, you know, gone down in history as these solid men of the faith. How did, we just went through Genesis. They kind of did about as well as the 12 apostles are going to do in the New Testament, right? These guys were blowing it for the most part. I mean, they threw their brother in a ditch. They sold him into slavery. One of them ran off and, and committed adultery with, with his stepmom. Another one went out and found a pagan wife, and then when she died, slept with his, his daughter-in-law and had a baby with her. And then another one went out, and because his daughter went out, wiped out all the Shechemites. And these guys were not like, you know, the, these not the A-team, you know? I mean, these guys were blowing it. But what I love about this is that when, at the death of Jacob, he still, even though the birthright is lost by Simeon and Reuben and Levi and is given to Joseph, their inheritance is not lost. And what's that a picture of? It's a picture of God's grace. It's a picture that we can totally blow it and God still loves us. Amen? The Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He's not looking to save the righteous. If he were, we'd all just have to pack it in and forget about it because we'd all be done because there's none righteous, no, not one. Amen? If any of you thinks you're righteous, well, now there's pride and you're definitely not righteous. Amen? You guys are stinking sinners like me. And that's why we need to be saved. And you know what? I love the grace of God here in, Genesis, here in Exodus as he reads the names of these guys. And he goes back and talks about these are the guys who entered in. Why? Because of God's grace and God's mercy. While obedience will produce great, the greatest fruit and praise from God, His grace is sufficient. No matter how much bad you've done, God is standing right there. You can take a million steps away from God, it truly is only one step back. And you know what? Reuben was restored. Simeon was restored. Levi, the tribe of, the, of Levites, was the priestly line, came out of a man who had walked in disobedience. God's grace, you've got to love it. And we see it right here in this text. It says here, all these descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Now, 70 is significant in two ways. It shows the humble beginnings of what a great nation would become. There's only 70 people at the beginning of Exodus. And by the time they leave out of, out of Egypt in chapter 18, there's over 2 million people. So what happens? We see that God had promised, I'm going to make you a great nation. And we're going to watch it happen in the first 18 chapters as it goes from 70 people to, to a couple of million. God's promise, God's faithful. And you know what? I love that. And you know, the reality is that every, I, I love the fact that our church started with, I don't know, eight people. You know, now on Sundays we're at 100 or something like that. And what, what I love about it is healthy sheep beget healthy sheep. And as people fall in love with Jesus Christ, they become more healthy. They fall in love with Him and they become contagious. And you can't help but tell people about God. You know, we don't have a lot of programs. We're not going to have the Flying Melendas on Wednesday night. We're not, you know, we're not building marshmallow towers and Bozo the Clown's not going to be here to give out free hamburgers so your friends will come. That's not what's going to happen. Because it's not about drawing a crowd. It's about discipling men and women. And you know one of the things I love about Israel here is that it starts with 70 people, it grows to 2 million, and they're still known as Israel. They don't intermingle with Egypt. They don't become like the... Now, they're going to make some mistakes, but they're still set apart, as we're going to see later in the chapter today. Also, God had an ordered plan in which the number of nations would correspond with the number of children in Israel. In Deuteronomy, it says this, When the Most High divided their inheritance of the nations, when He separated the sons of Adam, He set boundaries of the peoples according to the number of children of Israel. Guess how many nations are listed in Genesis chapter 10? I'll give you one guess. How many do you think? Seventy. Okay? And the Bible says that the number of nations would correlate with the number of Israel. There are seventy people that went in, 
to, to Egypt and to Goshen, and there were 70 nations in Genesis chapter 10. Nothing happens by chance in the Bible. People, oh, I've read the Bible. It's full. No, you haven't read the Bible if you don't, if you don't have a, a love interest with Jesus Christ. If you've truly read this book, it's a love letter from God to you, and it's pretty awesome. It should be life-changing. Amen? It's not, it's not like reading Gone with the Wind or something. This is the Bible, okay? It's God's Word. Verse 6. And Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all in that generation... But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. In the expanse of time, according to God's plan, Israel grew, again, from 70 to a great nation. It says in Numbers chapter 1, verse 46, when they went out of Egypt, that there were 603,550 males over the age of 20. So if you take that and take women and children, you're going to have roughly 2 million people. You ever thought about that? When they went through the Red Sea and how many people were walking? Man, no wonder they were, took a while to get across that thing, right? 2 million people. I've been on field trips with like 15, you know, 100 teenagers. I've taken 100 kids to high school camp. And man, just get them on the bus, man, 100 teenagers, right? And you're always, count them again, count them. I mean, always, man, you're, you know, we left a kid at Walmart one time. That was pretty brutal. Got all the way to camp. Where's so? Oh, he's at Walmart. We had to go back and get him. That's not good. So if that happens to 100 people, can you imagine 2 million? And Moses leading 2 million people out of Egypt. That's exactly what happened. It fulfills Genesis 35. He said, Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. God's promise to Jacob is Israel is going to explode. You're going to grow. You're going to become a mighty nation. Guess what? That's exactly what happened. They became a mighty and an awesome nation. So we go from Israel's rapid growth, now we're going to go to their severe affliction. Look at verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, there's significance in that. What kind of man was Joseph? We just spent several months looking at him. Joseph was the kind of man that virtually everybody loved. And you know why? Because he was a selfless man, he had the heart of a servant, he was a forgiving man, he was a man that would not compromise his faith. You remember, we, we talked about the ups and downs of Joseph's life. I'm just going to take one moment. But do you remember how he was thrown into a pit after being told by God that in a dream that all of, everyone would bow down and worship him. And he went and told all of his brothers. And you know, that, that didn't go over too well. You know, you got the, they got the coat of many colors. He's out there, yeah, I got the coat from Dad. And by the way, I had a dream. You're all bowing. Now, guess what? Big Brother said, uh, yeah, we ain't bowing to you. And when he came out, they go, here comes Dreamer Boy. And they said, let's kill him. Then we'll get his coat and his stuff, and he won't be around anymore. And then they chickened out, so they threw him in a pit. Well, then he gets sold into slavery. We know what happens. Uh, he, he, he does such a great job as a slave. Can you imagine that, having such a great attitude as a slave, that he gets elevated to second in the house, Potiphar's house. Well, Potiphar's wife sees him. Joseph's a yoked, good-looking young guy. And she grabs him and says, come, come, sleep with me. Come lie with me. Joseph says, no, 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 I'm not, no, not doing that. And we know the story that he ripped the coat out of her hand and he ran away. And, you know, the reality is, or she ripped the coat off of him. You know, if she'd been ugly, he would have just said, give me my coat. But he didn't. He had to run because she was good looking. So the reality is this guy fled from sin. And, not, and then what happened? Potiphar came home. His wife said he tried to rape me. So now he got thrown in jail. Wait a minute. This guy's life is like this. But you know what? In jail, he was faithful to God. He interpreted dreams and he ends up being elevated to second in all of the kingdom. His brothers come in, as we know in Genesis, and his brothers, he could have smoked them. He had all the, all the guards, all the Egyptian guard on his side. He could have just wiped out his brothers who threw him in a pit, but he showed them love. But you know what? Pharaoh loved Joseph, and he loved him so much that he gave Joseph basically whatever he wanted. Now comes a new king, and the word arose here means to rise against. 
which means that this king that came overthrew the previous pharaoh. And when he came in, he didn't know Joseph or his descendants or any stories of him. And so instead of having a love for Israel, he had a hatred for him. You know what? I see the same thing happening in the United States. Do you know that our country was founded on Christian Christianity? Amen? That's why, why did people come to this country? Because of religious tyranny on the other side of the ocean. And we came here, we were one nation under God, we were founded under Jesus Christ, we wanted to honor Him above all else, and you know what? There's a rising a king, and a rising a government, and we've got a nation that's risen up that has forgotten Jesus. We've got to take in God we trust off our money. Get the Ten Commandments out of there. Don't say thou shalt not kill. Our kids can't see that. That'll corrupt them. Get that out of here. We want to put Jesus, we want to dial Jesus down. We don't want to talk about him anymore. We, we need to respect everybody else's beliefs. You know what? I respect other people, but I don't respect beliefs that end up in hell. How about you? Oh, D- Dave, we need to respect Buddhism. No, I don't. Buddhism is a lie of the devil. It's from the pit of hell. I don't respect it. Man, that's pretty heavy. Well, I don't respect it. What about Mormonism? Mormons are good people. Yeah, I respect the Mormon people. I love them. I pray for them. I want to see them saved. But Mormonism is a cult from the pit of hell. I have no problem saying that. I don't respect it. And we shouldn't. We're a Christian nation, one nation under God, and Jesus Christ alone can save us. Amen? No other nation, no other church, no other land, no other ism. That's it. And what we see here is there arose a new king who no longer had a respect for Israel. And we need to be careful. And praise the Lord that we have, and I, you know, he's not a perfect, but praise God for our president. Amen? I'm so thankful we have a president that's not afraid to pray. A president who's not afraid to talk about Jesus Christ. Amen? You pray for him, that he'll stay that way. But what happens here is affliction is going to come because this, this new king doesn't know Joseph. He doesn't know what kind of man he was. And instead of looking at, at Israel as being a blessing, he looked at Israel as being a threat. He said, oh, wait a minute, there's a new king. He says, wait a minute, there's too many of these people. They're becoming a threat to me. And you know what? The same thing's happening in the world today. You know, these Christians, they're not a blessing, they're a threat. They're a threat to my way of life. Why? Because when you come into contact with somebody who's on fire for God, they're like a halogen light on your sin. Amen? You walk around, man, you know, you walk, oh man, I don't want to hang around that guy. He just, he loves God too much. I'm going to feel, I can't cuss around him. Right? Some of you guys are Christians. Somebody cusses around you. They know you're a Christian and they start apologizing, right? Why? Because you're a halogen light. Because when they see Jesus in you, they know there's something wrong with their life and something's missing. Not that you're holy or perfect or good, but that God is good and he shines through you. Amen? Well, this king rose up and he did not have any respect or honor for Israel. Look at what it says. And he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it... and it happened in the event of war that also they join our enemies and fight against us and, and go out of the land. Now, the new Pharaoh no longer again viewed him as a blessing. He said, these guys could be a curse to us. But look how he refers to Israel. Look in verse 9. He said to his people, look at the people. That word people there is a word that, re- that means a nation. So for the very first time, we see Israel being referred to as a nation. They've gone from 70 people to a great nation. A nation that has been honoring God. A nation that's been used by God. A nation that's blown it, but at the same time, God's been gracious and merciful. They remain separate and set apart. Isn't it interesting that they've grown to all these number of people, but people still knew who they were? They didn't just mix in with Egypt. They weren't like all the Egyptians, but people would say, oh yeah, he's one of those Israelites. Oh, he's, he's from Israel. He's of the tribe of Israel. 
You know what? Isn't that the way it's supposed to be with us as Christians? Amen? We're not supposed to mold into the world. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. People should look at us and say, what's different about you? You know, the Bible says that those that don't know Christ are dead in their trespasses and sins. We're to be different than them. Again, not better, not more holy, not, but we've been born again. And we see, we see and understand the world in a way that they cannot, apart from the Holy Spirit. And so, they were in the world, but they were set apart. And he said, they're mightier than us. God's blessing them. His hand's upon them. You know what? We need to do something. They're going to overrun us if we're not careful. You know what? That sounds like the world. You know, these Christians, man, you know, they, they're jamming their religion down our throat. They're tell, you know, they want to have, you know, Bibles in school. You know, a you know, hundred years ago, people learned to read, reading the Bible. Did you know that? In public school in the United States. They learned to read by reading the Bible. You know what? School is a little different back then than it is today. You think school is better then or now? What do you think? I mean, you know, people were not blowing each other away at school. People, you know, chewing gum was a major offense back in those days. You know, now it's, you know, you got metal detect. We got to get that Bible out of there because, you know, kids might love and honor each other. They might love the Lord and we can't have that. You know, I mean, you know, the gun lobby would be bummed out if we, if we had kids loving each other at school. So we see that an ungodly world will always represent God's people as dangerous, not to be trusted, a threat to the government. Attempting to gather allegiance to silence or destroy the threat is what these guys decide to do. You know, if I hear the word separation of church and state one more time, I'm going to be sick. Separation of church and state, first of all, is nowhere in the Constitution. But the word for separation of church and state is protecting this, the church from the state, not the other way around. Oh you, oh, you can't talk about Jesus here, separation of church and state. And I used to hear that as a youth pastor. I'd go on campus all the time and they'd say, Now, you know, you can't be talking about Jesus while you're here. Separation of church and state. I'd say, well, I'm talking about Jesus anyway. You can call the cops or something. Because I'm, I'm I didn't come over here. Uh, you know what I'm saying? I mean, why do we come? Why are we, why are we breathing? We're breathing in and out. You know, kids used to come, Pastor, they won't let me you know, read my Bible at, at school. They won't let me have a Bible. I said, have one anyway. Have one anyway. Oh, what are they going to do? How, oh, well, they won't let me pray. What you, what, you can't go on the quad with five of your friends and get in a circle and pray? Someone's going to stop you? And if they do... Praise the Lord, amen? Blessed are you when they were violent and persecuted you for my name's sake, amen? If my daughter ever came home being in trouble for, for studying the Bible at school, I'm not going to punish her, I'm going to high-five her, amen? I mean, you know, let's be sold out for Jesus. Let's not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's be separated unto Him. And let's not worry about what men say, but what does God say? In Acts 16, 20, speaking of Paul and Silas, they brought them in to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. They teach customs that are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up against them. It says in 1620, after preaching Christ in Thessalonica, it said, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. These guys have turned the world upside down. These guys are so on fire for God. And that's what they're saying. You know, there's so many of these Israelites. Man, there's, they're just mightier than we are. They're more powerful than we are. We've got to shut them down. And you know what? I love the testimony of Paul and Silas. They turned the world upside down, which in Santa Cruz would be turning it right side up because it's already upside down. Amen? It's all backwards. Wrong is right and right is wrong. But you know what? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the Bible says that one can chase a thousand into a great army. Amen? Jonathan fought all the Philistines by himself. You know how he could do that? Because he had God on his side. You plus God is a majority. And this guy looked out and he saw the army of Israel and he said, man, they're getting too mighty. We've got we to gotta squash them. We've got to do something to shut them up. We, you, know, we got, you know what, man? Let's dial it up for Jesus. Amen? 
I mean, man, if they ever fire me for talking too much, well, that's praise the Lord. Amen? Because God gave me the job I got anyway. He'll give me another one if he wants me to have one. It doesn't matter. Have any, let's have an eternal perspective. I'm not going to get to heaven and the Lord say, you know, Dave, you should have dialed it down. You should have talked about me a little bit less. You should have been really, you know, I wish you'd have sold some more yellow page ads. I, I, re, I really wish you had. That's not going to happen when we get to heaven. Amen? And so often, I mean, as I look at this, they're saying, you know, we got to squash these guys. I thought, man, that's exactly what the world is saying about us. Verse 11. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built Pharaoh's supply, supply cities, Pithon and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. Man, you knew that made them mad. So what they did is said, oh, get some taskmasters. Let's start whipping them. Let's start beating them. You know what? Let's keep these guys down. Let's just afflict them. And you know what? They're going to give up and quit. Let's just get after them. And it says there, I love this verse, and it says, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. You know what? As believers, that's got a spiritual impact for today. The more trials we go through, the more difficulties we suffer in life, the more we're going to grow spiritually if we'll trust in God. Amen? You know what? When we go through the middle of a difficulty, who's with us? Jesus is. We talked about this on Sunday. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Who's in the fire with them? Jesus. They had to be called out of the fire. Come out, come out, you know, from, from who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Come out, come out, you servants of the Most High God. What happened? Jesus is what happened. And they had to be called out of the fire because it's better to be in the fire with Jesus than out of the fire without him. And you know what? Praise the Lord. They, these guys were beating them. They were, they were treating them brutally. And all they did was grow and multiply even more. It made them stronger. And that's what happens when you're walking with God. The more they afflicted them, the more they grew. Man's afflictions cannot hinder God's plan. And man tries to do it all day long. Look at verse 13. Oh, they, they were the dread of the children of Israel. They were in dread of the children of Israel. You know what? They didn't want to see the children of Israel coming. They just wanted to get rid of them. But they thought, well, you know what? What are we going to do? Look how many. There's more of them than there are. We've got to do something to stop their numbers. And we're going to see that it's going to go from affliction to to an attempt to exterminate them. Look at verse 13. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. They made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and brick and all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Now, what were they trying to do? They made them not only serve for the profit of Pharaoh, but what they did was they tried to break their spirits. They tried to break them down. They tried to make them give up their faith. They tried to ruin their health and shorten their days to diminish the number of them. They tried to discourage them from marrying because their children would be born into slavery. They tried in an attempt to get them to desert their beliefs and to be like the Egyptians. Joshua 24 tells us, tells us that what they did do was keep a distinct body, but some of them did begin to fall into idol worship. We're going to see this clearly evident when they get freed. Remember this happening? When they escape and they get out of that land of bondage, what happens? Remember when they're out of Mount Sinai and... Moses goes up on the mountain to talk to the Lord. What happens when he comes back down? What have they done? They made an idol. Oh yeah, we just put it in the couch and jumped out of there. All right, Aaron. Now you're lying along with making idols, right? But they, what he said, and what do you think they learned about idols? They learned about it in Egypt. But they had become an affliction to them. And they, they, become, they disdained Israel. And they were trying to do everything they could to shut them down. As Christians, we must remember that what Satan means for evil, God will use for good. This hard bondage, what did it cause them to do? We're going to see later on in the text. It caused them to cry out to God. You know what? Praise the Lord. Count it all joy, my brother, when you fall into various trials. Because so often, you know what it does? It gets our eyes off of our resources and gets our eyes on the only resource that can help. 
in time of difficulty. Amen? You know what? When you got a million dollars in the bank, well, I don't know what that's like, but when you got a million dollars in the bank and, and, you know, and you've got perfect health and your kids are all getting straight A's and everything's wonderful, you know, you're on the cruise ship and you, there's no real need to cry out to God. But when things get difficult and the trials come, and, and, you know what, and you know what else too? When the trials come, it's an opportunity for you to grow and it's an opportunity for you to be an example to people around you. When you squeeze a lemon, you get lemonade, right? And when you squeeze a Christian, you ought to get Christ-likeness. You know, when things, difficulties happen to us, what we ought to do is we ought to be a joy and an example because people are watching. Amen? Well, they looked at, the, at them and they said, man, we want to snuff these guys out. We want to break their spirits. We want to tear them down. We're going to put them under hard bondage. We're going to, you know, we, do, we just don't want them. They're, over, they're outnumbering us. So we're moving on from affliction to now we're going to see them try to, to make them extinct. We're almost done. Look at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shiprah, and the name of the other one was Puah. And he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for Hebrew women and see them on their birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, then he shall live. So Pharaoh commands the Hebrew midwives to kill all the male babies. So, all right, we've tried affliction, and they just kept growing. We tried heavy bondage, they just keep getting stronger. No matter what we do to these guys, we can't stop them. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to just kill all their babies. If we kill all their babies, then they, can, they will cease to be a nation. They'll get weaker and more feeble over time, and eventually we'll wipe them all out. So that's what we want to do. So they call the Hebrew midwives in. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think there was pressure on the midwives when the Pharaoh calls you in? Pharaoh at the time is maybe the most powerful man on the planet. Do you think Pharaoh has a problem killing people? The answer is no. So he calls these women in and says, here's what I want you to do. When you go out and someone's giving birth, if it's a son, I want you to kill the baby. If it's a daughter, let him live. That's what I want you to do. You know what? We don't have that drastic of things being told to us, but sometimes in our work environment or in our family or other things, we're told by people to do things that we know are contrary to God's will. Someone will say to us, here's what I want you to do at work. Hey, you know, you know I know it's not really the most ethical thing, but here's what I'd like you to do. Could you just pretend that this really happened. Could you do this? And we have a choice to make. Honor God or honor our employer or our master as it would. Now the Bible says to honor those that God has placed in authority over us until they tell us to do something contrary to the will of God. Amen? And when someone tells us to do that, we don't do it. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Kids in youth groups come to me all the time, 17 years old. My dad told me never to read the Bible again. Bible says, honor your mother and father. Dad, what do I, Pastor Dave, what do I do? Bible says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. You think the Lord wants you to stop reading your Bible? Love your dad, honor your dad, serve your dad, read your Bible. It's okay. Read it at school if you have to. Right? Amen? That's how you're going to grow spiritually. So they, the Pharaoh calls them in and says, here's what I want you to do. So the midwives have a choice to make. They can either honor Pharaoh and they'll be safe, or they can honor God. And I love what they do. Look at verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So what did they do? They honored God. The Bible says that we can we either fear men or we fear God. Who do you fear? And it's a healthy fear. There should be awe and reverence and fear for Almighty God. Amen? If he came in the room right now, we'd all be flat on our face so quick. First of all, I couldn't mean his presence because we've got this old fleshly body on us. But if we could, we'd be on our face, amen, in worship and adoration, but also some fear because he's God, amen. 
And he's awesome. And you know what? There should be fear of God. There should be fear of consequences of sin, of getting, living our life contrary to his will. You know, that one of the things that when I do counseling that blows me away, more than, it just blows my mind. Someone will sit across from me and say, well, yeah, I know God don't want me to do it, but, you know, I'm doing it anyway. Now, I'll confess to you, I sin, and I do think, but when they just, yeah, yeah, you know, I know I'm not supposed to do it, but, oh, you know, hey, I like it, so I'm doing it. Oh, man, no fear of God right there, you know what I mean? Other people come in and say, yeah, I'm blown, man, I, yeah, could you pray for me? I'm struggling with this. That's a repentant heart, Amen. But some, you know, and they're just flipping. Well, these women feared God. They said, you know what, Lord? We don't care if Pharaoh kills us. We're going to honor you. We don't care what the world says. It ain't a popularity contest. Amen? Christianity is not a democracy. It's a theocracy. God's in charge. You're not. Amen? He's in control. He's in charge. He knows what's best. Let's honor him. Hey, I think we all ought to have nine wives. Let's vote. What do you think? You know, that ain't how Christianity works. That's how some... Cults work. Yeah, nine, well, that sounds good. Nine, one. And then you're going to be God of your own planet one day. Oh, really? Oh, that sounds really good. I like that. That's a good religion. I get to be God of my own planet. I get nine wives. Oh, that, no, I'll vote for that one. And that's why there's not a democracy. That's why we use the Bible. Amen? This is the authority, not any man. Read the book, don't wait for the movie, right? It's in the Bible. That's where we look for it. The midwives feared God. And the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, is what the Bible says. There's no wisdom without a fear of God. When you fear God, you begin to understand for the very first time. If you don't fear Him, you don't get it. We are to honor those that God has placed in authority until they tell us to do something contrary to His will. Let me say one last thing on that. You know what? Sometimes it's not even something heinous. It might just be, you know what? You get the promotion, but you're going to have to work 80 hours a week. You're going to work every Sunday and every Wednesday night. You're not going to be involved in any ministry. You just, you know, but you're going to make a lot more money. To me, that's no different than kill the babies. Because the reality is that God has called us to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Amen? Not seek first how much money I can make. Oh, I'll make a lot of money, I'll tithe more. You know what? God doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. Amen? He wants you to fall in love with Him. And you can't fall in love with somebody you don't ever spend time with. You know what? If My wife and I have been married 17 years. If I never talk to her, what kind of relationship would we have? She might like it better. No, I mean, but if I never talked to her, what kind of relationship would we have? And if, if every time she talked to me, I went, ah, da, da, da. I mean, what kind of, you know, she'd shoot me or something. But some people, that's how we are with God. Oh, yeah, me and God, we're be- yeah, I got a relationship with God. When's the last time you talked to him? Well, let me think about it. I prayed one time. I uh, wasn't feeling good one day, and I prayed. I, I talk- that was about nine months ago. I talked to him for a second, yeah. When's the last time he talked to you? I, uh, does he talk to you? I don't- you know what I mean? That's not a relationship. The relationship with God is two-way, constant, 24-7. Amen? And so what we see here is that, that these women feared God, they wanted to honor God, and they weren't worried about what men thought or men said. They said, you know what, we're going to honor you, Lord. We're almost done. Verse 18. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives have come. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew mightily. Now, some people have thought, well, these women just lied. I don't think so. I think what very clearly happened here is God had blessed the nation. We, know, we just talked about the fact it went from 70 people to over 2 million. And it happened in a few hundred years. And I believe that God blessed them even in childbirth. That it was easier on the women. And, it happened, and they didn't need midwives all the time. And the midwives also could have said, well, I'm just not going to go. 
right? Because if it's a boy, we're going to have to do something to... But the reality is, they honored God. They did not put the babies to death. They served and honored the Lord. And look what it says in verse 20. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives. The people multiplied and grew very mighty. Man cannot thwart God's will. Satan, repeatedly, you see this in the Bible, where he tries to snuff out the messianic line. He says, you know what, let's kill all the babies from Israel because I know the Messiah is coming from there. Herod's going to try to do the same thing when Jesus was born. But you know what? Satan can't stop Jesus. Amen? He can't stop God. He's a defeated foe. He's done. Verse 21. And so it was because the midwives fear God that they provided households for them. The fear of God will build a house. When you fear God, your house will be built on a solid foundation. A lack of godly fear and obedience in the home will bring destruction. The Bible says a wise man built his house upon the rock, and when the rains came, what happened? His house stood firm, right? What the foolish man built his house upon the sand, and when the waves came, his house crashed down. And let me just encourage you with something, especially men, okay? Let me encourage you. Be the priest in your household. Love your wife, but don't put your wife's will above God's will. Amen? Now, love your wife, serve your wife, honor your wife, lay down your life for your wife, minister to your wife, but don't do what your wife wants just because she wants to do it so you'll make her happy. You honor God above everybody else. Amen? And you know what? If you do that, your wife will be blessed. Amen? Amen, women? If they honor God above everything else, won't you be blessed? Don't you, you know, if you, a godly husband is the greatest thing he can give you. And for your children, don't just cop out all my kids, you know, well, you know, you know, it's easier just to let them do what they want. You know what? A house that's built on that foundation will crumble. We need to put Jesus Christ at the center of our home. We need to fear God in our houses. We need to cleanse the stuff that's going to cause our kids to stumble when it comes to spiritual things. If there's TV on your get rid of it. If there's stuff in your house that's going to cause your kids to stumble, get it out. It's not worth it. Amen? What does it profit a man if he loses the whole world and loses his own soul? And you know what scares me as much as losing my own soul, which I know is secure, is one of my children not walking with God. I cannot even imagine. And you know what? We have to make choices to fear God in our household. These women feared God in their household and it built a great home. And we need to fear God in our houses as well. And God will build a great house. Verse 22. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. So the fear of God, we see, was in the women. So he said, well, I can't use them. So he turned to everybody else and said, Every time you see a baby that's born of Israel that's a boy, I want you to drown him. Can you imagine that? Pharaoh calls in and says, Now this is... A, at this point, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people already, saying, every time you see one of them have a child, if it's a boy, I want you to take it down to the river and I want you to drown it. Now what's incredible is what Satan uses, decides for evil, God will use for his glory, because what happened because of this? Who put their baby in a basket and put it in the river to keep it from being drowned? What was the baby? Who's the baby? Moses. And where did Moses go? Who did he get adopted by? Pharaoh's daughter. So Moses, because of Pharaoh saying, kill all the babies, and she wanting to preserve her son, puts him in a basket and sets him down the river. He ends up in Pharaoh's house, and Pharaoh, using his own ungodly decision and desire, instead brings this baby that would have never been in his house, puts Moses in his home where he lives for nearly 40 years, and is preparation for him to become the deliverer of all of Israel out of Egypt. Amen? And why? Because God will take what Satan means for evil and he'll use it for his glory. So in summary, if the worship team will come back up. It is no coincidence 
that the final plague in Egypt, who knows what it was? What was the final plague in Egypt? Before they let the people go. Kill, killed the firstborn male if they didn't have the blood of the Passover. Isn't it interesting that Pharaoh wanted to do what? Kill all the what? The male Israelite children. And how does God bring vengeance? He kills the firstborn male children of the Egyptians if they did not have the Passover blood. The Passover, again, being a picture of Christ. They took the blood of the firstborn spotless lamb, they put it on the mantle, both sides of the door, picture of the cross. Amen? It was a spotless lamb, a picture of Jesus Christ, and the angel of death would pass over whenever somebody had that blood. So lastly, Israel's rapid growth was God's covenant. We saw it this week. This evening when 70 grew to 2 million we see Israel's severe affliction that what Satan means for evil God will use for good that even when they were afflicted they grew even faster and they grew even more we saw Israel's planned extinction but God is in control that we're to fear God not men and we see Satan's plan landed the deliverer in Pharaoh's house man I love that don't you love that God's plans are perfect that Satan can't do anything that God's will is going to happen no matter how weak men are now next week we're going to take a look at the birth of Moses it's going to be great. Great chat. A lot happens in chapter 2. I encourage you to be here. Sunday morning, again, we're going to, we're going to continue in, our gospel, in the Gospel of Luke. But let's close a word of prayer. Why don't we all stand? We're going to close a word of prayer and a worship song. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. And I, I am so blessed to know, Lord, that you are completely and totally in control. That it has absolutely nothing to do with my intelligence or our intelligence in this room or our ideas or our plans. But, Father God, that you would use mere people like us out of your love for us, that you would let us be a part of your plan if we'd just be obedient to you. And, Father, I just ask, Lord, tonight, if there's those of us here, Father God, who are, who are more afraid of what men say, or, Lord, because of affliction, we fled from you instead of fleeing to you, or, Lord, if we'd allowed our house to be built upon the sand, that, Father God, we would turn to you completely and say, Lord, I trust you. Lord, your sovereign will is perfect. Lord, I just ask, Father, just for each one of us to pour your Spirit upon us afresh. And Lord, as we get ready for the celebration of your resurrection on Sunday and Good Friday, Lord, I pray that you just give us opportunities to share our faith with the people we work with, the people in our, our family and friends who have a limited knowledge of you. I pray, Lord, you just help us to be examples to them and bring divine appointments. Lord, right now I just pray that we'd close in worship, we would sing to you, that we'd glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said... Amen. Let's worship.